is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here. And we love to tell your stories, too, and this one got sent to us along by a listener. And this is just one of those great stories about our country, its character, and you don't hear enough of these stories, and, well, we wanted to bring it to you. And joining us to tell his story is Chris Williams, and he lives in Conroe, Texas, 45 minutes north of the city of Houston. And, Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. And, Chris, before we talk about what brought your story to our attention, tell us a little bit about your life, where you were born, your parents, uh, what, were, what were the important things to them, and uh, just a bit about your early life. I was born and raised in Louisiana, actually 60 miles south of New Orleans in a place called Point O'Hash. And, um, you know, my, my parents were people that just kind of helped people. They went out of their way to help people. And so we could be dressed up to go somewhere, go to church, whatever. And if somebody was broken down on the side of the road, my dad would stop and try to, to help them uh, fix the car or, or get to where they needed to go. And so they were just, in the end, you were watching their generosity in action pretty much most of your life. Yeah, definitely. I, we, we always had somebody living with us, and uh, I continued that tradition uh, with, with my family. Uh, we've always had uh, exchange students and people that needed a place to stay living with us, and it's great now to see my, my girls are grown, and they're continuing to do the same with, uh, with their family. So that's, that's amazing to me. So giving had just become a part of your DNA. And uh, let's talk about this thing that you just decided to start and what led to it. Talk about God's Garage. Well, God's Garage was, was born in my little garage at the house, and I just wanted to be able to help people that, uh, that needed help with their cars and couldn't afford to, to get them repaired. Um, and, and that was kind of born out of it. There were years where I couldn't afford parts for my cars, and I would just pray that the thing would run and get me to work and get me home every day. And I thought, man, one day I'm going to help people. And, and so that's what we did. We, we just started trying to help people out. And transportation is the lifeblood for so many people. And there's not a lot of help in that space. I mean, your car either runs or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, boy, you're in a world of hurting. So, Chris, sure. you, you start God's Garage. How do, how do people start to find out about it? Do you remember your very first... Uh, your first person that you were able to bring help to and, and, and just help out in this endeavor. And then what happened next? We, um, we helped a few people for, through word of mouth, um, but the, the big one came when I was on my way home from church one Wednesday night. It was dark and raining hard, and I could barely make out a couple people walking on the side of the road. And I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if they'll get in the car with me and let me give them a ride. And they got in. Well, it was a single mother and her daughter, um, and they were uh, on the way to their house, and, and I, I said, what are you guys doing? What, why are you walking in the rain? And they said, well, the truck's in the shop. And as we talked, found out the truck had been in the shop for three months. And I said, why is the truck still in the shop? And I was kind of getting mad at the mechanic for not releasing the car yet, and uh, she hung her head and said, we can't afford to, to, to fix it. And so that just broke my heart, and, and that really started us uh, in a... In a, a Sort of, sort of a more concerted effort to do more. And we built a shop at my uh, new house, uh, a 40 by 40 building, and we brought her truck in, fixed her truck up, and gave it back. And that really started the ball rolling. Um, there was, uh, there's been so many people that uh, there's great stories that, that we've helped. Um, and it's, it's just 
it's a blessing to me and to the guys that work with us to be able to do what we do. Blesses us as much as them. And how many people are you helping now? How many? Tell, tell us about the, the shop. Um, how many people are employed there? Uh, and how many people you're, you're helping at this point? Right now, we uh, have about 20 mechanics. Um, we are all volunteers. We have about 20 people on a cook team that uh, rotate and cook for us on the nights that we work. We usually, during the day, Monday through Friday, we have four, five, sometimes six guys working all day. And then Monday nights and Tuesday nights and Thursday nights, we have up to a dozen guys working until 9 o'clock or so. Um, so we have a, a lot of people helping out. We have a vetting team that goes through the applications. This year, we've given 41 cars away. So far, we're about to give about 10 more away before the end of the year. And next year, our, uh, our plans are to double that. We want to give away 100 cars next year. We've also repaired a bunch of cars as well. So we do the two things. We repair vehicles for single mothers, widows, and wives of deployed military, and we give cars away to single mothers, widows, and wives of deployed military. And, you know, there's a the quote that I just loved from you that I bumped across that said there was a time when you found yourself short on money and long on car troubles. And I guess <laughs> yeah. in the end, that, that's an empathetic power you have in all these volunteers. And my goodness, these volunteers, they have jobs during the day, right? Yeah, we have uh, everyone from teenagers after school to retirees to guys who are working full-time jobs and then come in at night and, and work at night. Uh, we have guys who do shift work, and when they're not on their shift, instead of being home and lazing around, they actually come and, and volunteer their time. It's a great thing. And they feel better about it, too. I mean, this is the thing about giving. I mean, it's you know, you're, you're giving to other people, but what you're getting in return, uh, Chris, talk about that. Man, uh, you know, we live in a selfish world uh, where we're bombarded with, with these uh, thoughts that you're number one and take care of yourself and put yourself first. And when we do that, uh, when we have problems and situations that arise, uh, they tend to be all-consuming, and they take us over. Well, when we get outside of ourselves and we try to help somebody else, our problems diminish. Uh, they're not so big anymore. And it's funny, you know, when we help other people, sometimes the things that we say to them and the things that we do for them uh, leads to some, some changes in our own lives. And, and what I just told that person that they needed to do, gee, I kind of need to do that too. Uh, so it's 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 a, a great thing for you to be able to refocus your energies in your life on on others instead of just on yourself. Well, hold that thought, Chris. When we come back, I want to talk about two particular stories, and then I want to share with the folks where they can go to help you and what you do. And that's www.godsgaragecar.com, www.godsgaragecar.com. And when we come back... More with Chris Williams of God's Garage in Conroe, Texas. And that's just 45 minutes north of Houston. His story, and my goodness, this is so many American stories. We're a good country and we're a caring country. These stories here on Our American Stories.
Lovely Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Chris Williams, and this is just a great generosity story. It's a great American story, and God's garage in Conroe, Texas, is what he started, and it started with just an idea, I want to help people, and this is a space where people really need help, and not enough people are hitting this space, and it's transportation, and not everybody lives in a big city where you can get on a bus and actually get where you need to go. The car is such a fundamental part of our lives, and without a reliable one, boy, life can get tough. And we heard Chris tell a story about that single mom and her daughter whose truck had been in a shop for three months. And she was, it sounded, Chris, like she was ashamed to admit that it had been there. And it sounded like you almost had to get that out of her. And there's a lot of shame involved in this, isn't there, Chris? There is. Uh, when, when you don't have reliable transportation, you go through the normal channels. You start with your family. Hey, can I, can I borrow a ride? Can you take me here or there? Um, after a while, they get pretty exhausted helping you out. And so you, you turn to your friends. And after a while, they get tired as well. So when we are able to repair a car for someone or, or give them a car, we're not just giving them transportation. We're restoring dignity and, and giving them uh, a, a new independence with respect. They can take care of uh, their, their needs without begging and borrowing. And so it's, it's a big life change for a lot of these ladies that we help. Indeed. And let's talk about a few stories in particular. Tell us about Susan and her special needs daughter. And Susan, uh, she came to us, uh, she filled out an application, and and we brought her out. And we actually had a news crew from a local television station come out. And we, we wanted to interview her as part of the process. And so we did so and showed her the garage. Well, what she didn't know is that we actually had the vehicle ready to give her. And so we gave it to her on, on live TV. Um, fast forward, uh, the gentleman, the, the reporter that did the story came back to me and he said, I've never done this. I've never gone back and, and done a follow-up on my stories in all of these years. But I'll, can, I, can I follow up? And I said, sure. Well, he had interviewed Susan at the, the onset before we gave her the car, um, met her daughter, and spent a little bit of time with her. When he went back to interview her, he, he actually spent the day with her. He came straight from that interview to me, and he said, do you understand what's happened with this lady? And I said, well, she's, uh, she's volunteering now at the garage. She's helping out with things, and, uh, yeah, she's, she's got freedom and, and independence. He says, no, you don't understand the change that has been made in this lady. I interviewed her. I'm a good judge of people, and she wasn't faking. She's a different person now. She has purpose. She has a sense of direction. She's telling everybody that she knows about the garage and what it can do for people, and she's, she's you guys' biggest fans, but she's a different person. And so that just warms my heart uh, to just see the change in people. Indeed. And, you know, one of the great pastors in this country in the 20th century is Rick Warren. And his book was The Purpose Driven Life. And for so many people, when you don't have that purpose, Chris, that's how we can get lost. Talk about another story, Lisa from the Salvation Army Shelter. Tell her story for us. Lisa filled out an application and uh, we, we vetted her. We talked to her on the phone and she came out. We were able to give her a car, but her story is uh, is something that you don't normally hear, uh, but that happens frequently. She is a uh, degreed, college-educated lady, succinct, articulate, well-dressed, uh, well-put-together. She came down for a job in Houston at a hotel chain. The hotel put her up in, in a suite, 
and um, provided for her car and, and necessities, and she was doing very well running the hotel uh, until the hotel was sold. And the new owners came in and fired everyone and said they were starting with their own people. So she found herself not only without a job, but without a place to live. Uh, after a, a few weeks had gone by and she'd, she'd stayed with friends and, and uh, run out of places to stay, she found herself in the Salvation Army. She ended up losing her car as she scrambled to find a new job. What a situation to find herself in after doing the things that we're supposed to do. She went to college. She got good grades. She, she went after a career in, in hotel management and found herself in a shelter. And she said, I never thought I'd find myself here. We gave her a car. She's been able to get a, a new job, uh, a new lease on life, and she's flourishing. Uh, again, this is, this is a life change for people. It's not, it's not a handout. Uh, it's, it's just a help out. And so what a, what a blessing to do this. Yeah, and we forget all of us who have that help readily available through social capital, through family, through a church, through a network. Um, we, I think many of us take that for granted, Chris. Talk about faith, and it's God's garage, obviously, but talk about the faith of the volunteers, you. What part did faith play in this? Well, it was a, uh, it was a big deal for me to, at the, uh, the, the end of last year, beginning of this year, to say, I'm going to go work full-time at this garage where there's no money. <laughs> there's no salary, there's no paycheck. But I, we felt like God was orchestrating this, and, and this was the time, and so we stepped out there. Uh, we call it God's garage because it's His. It's, it's uh, His blessings that we're just stewarding. Uh, it's not ours. It's not, it's not Chris's workshop. Um, so all of the, uh, the, the, the glory, if you will, goes to God. Um, the kudos goes to God, not to us. And, and then, as well, all of the uh, provisions, they have to come from God. Uh, we can't conjure up the money uh, ourselves, and, and so he provides that as well. So, yeah, faith is a, is a major thing for us. We, uh, we want to present our lives as a, uh, a testimony of, of how God's working through situations in our lives and what's going on. And so the guys that work with us, we develop relationships with, and we're able to, to minister to each other. The ladies that we help, we're able to minister to. Um, so faith is a, a major part of this. Yeah, you've got, in essence, a head and body shop, a gear shop, a bunch of gear guys have a ministry, Chris. Yes, yes. It's just beautiful. And tell me this, what, what was your family's reaction when you said, this is where the Lord's calling me, because that's how so many Christians talk to their family. This is where he wants me to go. And I've, I've heard some things like that from friends, and I go, are you sure that's what he wears? Are you sure that's where he wants you to go? Yeah. You know, my family was great because we've led a, a faith-led life, um, and my wife uh, thankfully has a, a good job. Uh, so she was on board and, and said, yes, this is what we're supposed to do. Yes, leave your great paycheck behind. Uh, and I was doing ministry. I was, I was pastoring, been pastoring for years. Um, so it's not like I was uh, trying to, to get out of a secular position, if you will, and get into a religious position or anything like that. Uh, but this was what we were supposed to do, and so we went for it. Uh, most of my friends are very supportive. They've seen God uh, in action in my life and realize that uh, when I say, you know, I'm, I'm following God's leading here, that, that it must be okay. It's going to work out. Uh, I've got a couple of friends that are kind of, you're doing what? for, And you don't get paid? How does that work? <laughs> so we, we've made adjustments, and, and we're doing what we need to do to make it work. Um, 
but again, what, I, mean, I can't explain to you how great the blessing is to do what we get to do, to work with the guys that, that are selfless and volunteering. And I'll tell you, almost all of our volunteers not only give a, a lot of their time, they give financially as well. Uh, and it just tells you how, how amazing this ministry is. That, is. that is an amazing story. You're looking to give away 100 cars next year, and that's on yeah. top of the countless repairs you do uh, for all the folks in need. And please, if you want to give or you want to learn more, go to www.godsgaragecar.com. That's godsgaragecar.com. And a final thought, Chris, for Folks who are on the fence that they feel like they are being called to do something. And, yeah, they've got to have that really awkward conversation with the wife or the wife has to have that conversation with the father and the kids. Um, Mm -hmm. Talk them off the fence if you can, Chris. I'll tell you, if if you feel like you're supposed to do something that you feel like God's leading you to do it, and it doesn't make sense to a lot of other people, but you still feel so strongly about it, that's obviously God. Uh, we know that you're, you're not going to go do something good uh, because the, the devil wants you to do it. <laughs> so, and if, it, and if, it's, if there's some, uh, some pushback on it, well, you know what? If I feel this strongly about it, then God must be in it, and I'm just going to open or go through open doors where they're open. Um, the other thing I, I do want to say is do something for someone else, no matter how small, no matter how big. Do something for somebody else. Get together with another person or five other people and do something good for somebody. Uh, because on our own, we can do some really cool things. But when we get together as a group, oh, my gosh, we can accomplish so much. But don't hold back. Don't wait for the one day. If I win the lottery or if I do this or that, do it now. Do something. Indeed. And great words. And again, we're talking to Chris Williams, his story God's Garage, not Chris's, God's, God's Garage in Conroe, Texas, about 45 minutes north of the great city of Houston. Chris Williams' story here on Our American Stories. stories and this one is unusual I want to read a quote from John Gardner the former Secretary of Health under Lyndon Johnson the President of the United States in the 60s quote the society which scorns excellence in plumbing as a humble activity and tolerates shoddiness in philosophy because it is an exalted activity will have neither good plumbing nor good philosophy neither its pipes nor its theories will hold water This is the unspoken story about the small, unmentionable seat in the corner of our lives, or said another way, this is how we have been shaped by our grossest national product. Here's Greg Hengler. Elvis died in one. 
and Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, was born on one. Although we use them every day, most of us know very little about toilets. Here's author of The Porcelain God, Julie Horin, and public health historian, David Rossner. Not only did civilization start with the onset of writing, but it also started with man actually coming and getting a, a hold of his sanitation needs. Creation of sanitary systems were in some sense the basis for creating great cities and great communities. The earliest written reference to the disposal of human waste is more than 3,600 years old and is found in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 23, 12-13, God instructs the Hebrews to do their exodus in a holy fashion. You are to have a place outside the camp. Go there to relieve yourself. You are to have a digging tool in your equipment. When you relieve yourself, dig a hole with it and cover up your excrement. For hundreds of thousands of years before this was written, Human beings simply squatted when they had the urge to go. As the world became more populated, disposal of human waste became a bit more difficult. In ancient Egypt, cities began to spring up from the desert. By 2500 BC, the Egyptians solved the waste disposal dilemma, constructing bathrooms with latrines which were flushed by hand with buckets of water. The latrines emptied into earthenware pipes many of which are still functional today. The Roman Empire also had a public sewage system. Here's David Rossner and sociologist Stephen Seufer. Rome was not built in a day, but it was built around its water supply system and its ability to get rid of its material without polluting itself or polluting people downstream. Their development of the bathroom was incredible. Middle-class Romans in their homes were able to hook up a private bathroom to the public sewer system that Rome had developed and actually have the waste carried away to the main sewage disposal plant. Like Rome's private lavatories, their public latrines, which were seat holes carved into stone benches, were erected over channels of water that came from distant mountain streams that flowed through aqueducts for over 200 miles. Here's poet Eva Upglin visiting some Roman restroom ruins. This was a communal privy. You'd have sat here, the seat has disappeared, and your waste would have dropped into this drainage channel here. The water flushed the waste away, nobody had to touch it. And of course, as it dropped into the water, that minimized smell. Now then, this second water channel running in front of us here was what you would have used to wash yourself afterwards. You would have had a stick with a piece of sponge on the end, dip that in the water, wash behind yourself, thus giving rise to the phrase, the importance of not getting hold of the wrong end of the stick. But the privy, which takes its name from the Latin word for privacy, couldn't save the Roman Empire. And when it finally fell, the water-fed toilet fell into the lavatorial dark ages, clogging up toilet innovation for more than a thousand years. During these medieval times, castle dwellers would strengthen their defenses by dumping waste into their moats. The raw sewage discouraged invaders from crossing. Here's physicist Charles Panetti, author of Extraordinary Origins. 
the only thing that you had indoors for the next really a thousand years was the chamber pot which was really something of a horror story. It was a convenience in one way when you needed to go in the middle of the night. At nighttime was the time when people would dump the contents of this uh, chamber pot outside their windows into the streets below. And the idea that a man walks on the left side of the female dates back to this time. It was polite for him to get hit by the contents of the chamber pot and to spare the woman. In the 16th century, the flushing toilet made its debut in England. The first nearly modern toilet was made for Queen Elizabeth I in 1596. It was made by her godson, Sir John Harrington. He made it to get back in her good graces because she had banished him from court for using foul language. He came up with a really clever device. It had a tank at the top, it had a valve you opened to let water down, and there was a trap door that you could close after you used the toilet. Harrington's primitive toilet had a critical design flaw. One, the flushing sound was ear-piercing. And, number two, the pipe beneath the bowl was vertical. Waste went straight down, and sewer smells came straight up. The queen complained that fumes came up from the cesspool, uh, but it was a problem that her godson was never able to solve. You realize how bad the situation was if you look at the Palace of Versailles. A fortune was spent in constructing it. It had these wonderful hall of mirrors, elaborate chandeliers, and you might have a thousand people being entertained, eating and drinking copiously, but where did they go to the bathroom? There was not a single bathroom in the entire elaborate palace. And the answer is they went in the stairwells. And one of the reasons the French applied so much perfume during that period was to overcome all of the indoor odors from people relieving themselves. Outside Versailles, People were relieving themselves in indoor cesspits. They were simply benches or seats perched over holes lined with wood, stone, or brick. Their main drawback, aside from the smell, was that you had to pay nightmen called scavengers wielding a bucket and a shovel to clean them out and carry them on a horse-drawn cart to local streams and rivers. This is why it pays to be upstream. And if you ventured into town and nature called, a man called a Johnny offered his customers privacy. He wore a large black cape and carried a chamber pot. The customer would pay a half a cent and squat over the pot while Johnny covered him with the large cape. Fast forward to 18th century America. Colonists modified the cesspit by taking it outside and constructing a small wooden shack over it. The outhouse was born. They would place the uh, outhouses far enough from the house where there would not be uh, problems with smell or with seeping into the water supply of the house. In 1775, while America was embroiled in the Revolutionary War, back in the mother country, another revolution was taking place. British watchmaker Alexander Cumming filed for the first ever patent on a toilet with a twist. Literally, the pipe beneath Cummings' toilet bowl curved backward in a distinctive S-shaped bend. This allowed water to pool in the U-shaped part of the pipe, cutting off the explosive and stinky sewer gas from below. It actually is the modern toilet because we still have that water separating us from the cesspool today. 
Long before President Lyndon Johnson held meetings with Robert Kennedy while sitting on the John, the toilet played a leading role in governing our nation. America's first owner of this modern toilet was Thomas Jefferson, who had three of these elite oddities installed at Monticello. By the dawn of the 19th century, one important factor was still missing. Without working sewers, waste was just too big a load for the cesspits of the city and seeped deep into the ground. And when we come back, more on the story, the history of the toilet with Greg Hengler here on Our American Stories. stories and that was Jeff Daniels in the infamous toilet scene from 1994's Dumb and Dumber. Let's return to Greg Hengler and the unspoken story of the toilet. By the dawn of the 19th century, one important factor was still missing. Without working sewers, waste was just too big a load for the cesspits of the city and seeped deep into the ground. Here's David Rossner and scientist Adam Hart Davis. If you have a privy and it's uh, not too far away from your pump, you're going to have a real problem. You may literally be drinking the excrement that you're dumping the day before. Absolutely disgusting. And when they had drains, the drains simply went out into the streets, so all the streets were running with sewage. Toilet technology could only go so far until engineers could construct water delivery systems like the Roman aqueducts, able to service entire cities. In 1842, contending with the sudden rise of population due to an influx of immigrants, New York City paved the way. The system's designers harnessed a fundamental law of nature, that water always flows downhill. That water in your city follows the same principle. Water is pumped to the top of giant towers that are linked to pipes beneath the streets. Since the tower is higher than the water's final destination, Gravity maintains pressure and forces the water through the pipes to your tap and toilet. After water is used, gravity is rendered once again and carries it away through sewer pipes angled downhill. During the 19th century, more and more cities followed New York's example. At the turn of the 20th century, plumbing was an exploding business in America, much like web search engines are today. And by the 1930s, America's entire urban population had access to running water. In 1854, a 10-year-old boy, John Michael Kohler, was brought to America from Austria by his father. This boy would become the Steve Jobs of toilet technology. With the purchase of a majority interest in Union Iron and Steel Foundry in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, 19 years later, he founded Kohler Company and successfully traversed the burgeoning sanitation market. 
The father of six developed his company into one of the few family-owned businesses still in existence dating from the turn of the century. About three-quarters of feces is water, and 10% is undigested food, but the remaining 15% is all bacteria, billions of them. And it's these bacteria that give feces its distinctive smell. Most of the bacteria are harmless and spend their lives processing the food inside our intestines, but some are lethal. Feces contain all the fiber that we can't digest that comes in the breakfast cereal and in fresh fruits and vegetables and so on. They contain the remains of dead blood cells, which is why it's brown, because that's what the remains are. It's stuff called bilirubin, which comes from broken down blood cells, and it contains enormous quantities of bacteria. And if you ingest those bacteria, if you eat them, then you're going to get very ill. Historically, the two great diseases that are associated with human waste are, of course, cholera. People can be perfectly healthy in the morning and be dead, literally dead in the evening. And uh, typhoid, another horrendous disease that is terrifying in its various aspects in that it creates terrible welts and rashes and also terrible fevers and sickness among anyone who comes into contact with it. Between 1831 to 1832, 50,000 Brits died from cholera. In Paris, cholera killed 18,000 in a single summer. The U.S. was next. Cholera had been moving east from Asia into Europe. In 1832, it had reached Paris and it had reached London, and it was a very, very serious disease. We never expected to hit here. And then 1832, it hit Boston, it hit Philadelphia. More than 150,000 Americans died during the two cholera pandemics between 1832 and 1849. With the help of the new toilet, the westernized world was drowning in its own excrement. The smell, germs, and death finally led politicians to an effective solution. High-capacity sewers that carried the waste far away from town. They're sort of monuments to excrement, if you like. And uh, I've been down the sewers, and it's absolutely amazing how well they were built. The stuff running through them is not fun, but the sewers themselves are utterly brilliant. As the astronauts were to be the heroes of the 20th century, in the 19th century, toilet inventors were the giants that walked among men. The key innovation was a water siphoning system to force waste through the base of the bowl with unparalleled efficiency. What worked then still works now. Once the toilet bowl's flush handle is pulled, a valve inside the holding tank called the flapper opens up and water drains quickly into the bowl through a series of angled holes under the rim. The man who is often credited with inventing this flushing wonder probably had little to do with it. Thomas Crapper. Yes, he really existed. What he did patent is the pole chain that worked in conjunction with a valveless cistern, thus decreasing noise and preserving water. Due to his toilet innovations, the Victorian-era plumbing magnate earned himself a place in toilet history, if only by selling lots of them. 
During World War One, when American soldiers were stationed over in Britain, they would come across a lot of these toilets and they started the euphemism of I'm going to the crapper and they based it on what they saw on the toilets, which said Thomas Crapper and company. And the John is derived from the toilets installed at Harvard University in 1735, which were emblazoned with the manufacturer's name, Reverend Edward Johns. While Crapper and Johns were making a name for themselves, two enterprising brothers were busy inventing the toilet's most essential accessory. Although the Chinese invented paper in the second century, it took them more than 1,200 years to get around to using it in the bathroom. They finally did in 1391 AD, but it was strictly for the use of emperors. Where did that leave commoners? People generally used their hands, and, in, and currently in many uh, countries around the world where paper is a premium, people continue to use their left hand. That is why when you travel to uh, parts of the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and Asia, you won't find any left-handed people. Everyone there is right-handed because the left hand is considered unclean. In medieval Europe, commoners used hay, grass, and plant leaves to clean themselves. In early America, millions used corn cobs. The cobs were softened first by prolonged soaking in water. The corn cobs were generally given to the pigs to eat, and then when the pigs were finished with them and there was just the cob left, they would take those and use them to wipe themselves. So there was very little waste. When mass-published newspapers and catalogs became commonplace in the 19th century, Americans finally said goodbye to corn cobs and hello to Sears Roebuck. People would take the catalog, hang it in their outhouses, and they would read from it while they were doing their business. And at the finish of the business, they would tear off a piece and use it to wipe themselves. Things changed in the 20s. Unfortunately, Sears started using glossy print paper. The absorbing benefits of the catalog kind of lost it. So you didn't see so many people using the Sears catalog as toilet paper from then on. By that time, however, consumers had another option, real toilet paper. Here's Ken Fishberg, author of Toilet Paper Encyclopedia, and Charles Panetti. There was a man named Joseph Gaetti. He was a New Yorker, and he had a paper business in New Jersey. He was the first person who actually took paper, cut it into sheets, into small sheets, and sold it through drugstores as therapeutic paper. The people who bought them thought the paper was too nice and ended up using it as stationery, writing on it, and still using their catalog. In 1879, entrepreneurs Irvin and brother Clarence Scott began selling rolled toilet paper. It was made from tissue paper bought from other manufacturers, which they cut up, rolled, and repackaged. Although there have been some improvements over the years, today's toilet tissue is made basically the same way. In the 1940s, Scott's competitor, Northern Paper Mills of Green Bay, Wisconsin, began using chemicals to completely dissolve wood fibers and refer to their toilet paper as splinter-free. Today, nearly 2.4 billion people around the world don't have toilets. Nearly 150,000 people die every year from cholera. That's more than AIDS. In 2007, the prestigious British Medical Journal's 11,000 medical experts and readers, mostly doctors, voted modern sanitation as the number one medical advance since 1840. Not antibiotics, not vaccines, 
but toilets and clean water. The average human life expectancy increased nearly 35 years over the span of the 20th century. Roughly 30 of those 35 years are attributable to improvements in sanitation. Unless you count NASA's space toilets, the post-war era brought mostly incremental shifts in shapes and colors and shag carpet seat covers. While Harrington's godmother Elizabeth I might be baffled by a 21st century porcelain throne, Queen Victoria would easily recognize the seat upon which her great-great-granddaughter Elizabeth II does her sovereign business. Harry, are you in there? In this modern Game of Thrones, Be right out! we're all privileged members of the same royal family. I hope you're not using the toilet, it's broken. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and what a story. And by the way, we learned about this problem in cities, too, when we were discussing the evolution of the automobile. Horse poop all over the streets of New York, Philadelphia, Boston. You'll learn this only here on Our American Story. And this is Our American Stories, and periodically we drill down on a book we think is important, and we spend an hour with the author. And the author has generally spent, well, not hours, not, not months, more than likely years drilling down on the subject themselves. And so always we like to talk to the author a bit about their own history, and then drive down on the book itself. And this month the book is Tim Wu's book, The Attention Merchants, and it caught our attention in the Wall Street Journal, which had a compelling review and drove us to, well, ask ourselves, what's going on? And so joining us is Tim Wu. Tim, thanks for joining us. Oh, sure. Pleased to be here. Tim, we love starting off always with any conversation we have with anybody, whether it's an inmate or a celebrity. And we've, we've just about covered the full range here. Um, and you're somewhere in between an inmate and a celebrity. Uh, tell me a little bit about who you are. Where did you grow up? What were you interested in when you were young, and what led you to this place in your life that you're writing a book called The Attention Merchants? Well, that's a great uh, uh, question. So I was uh, born in Washington, D.C. My, my parents were scientists at the NIH. Uh, we grew up, though, uh, kind of all over the place. Moved from Washington to, to Canada, Toronto, for a while. Um, spent some time in Europe. Eventually came back to the United States. So I, I then in the United States, I lived on West Coast, East Coast. So a little bit of, of everywhere. I also spent a little time in Asia. My father is uh, Taiwanese. Uh, I don't know what I was interested in that was related to this uh, book when I was a kid. I did have a way when I was a kid of uh, memorizing advertising jingles, and uh, uh, this book does um, dwell very deeply into the, uh, the history of advertising. And I guess I decided to write this book for, for a number of reasons. Uh, one is I just sense something is going on here. I, um, like everyone, um, I think feel more fragmented, a little distracted, think it's hard to focus. I mean, I thought it's always been true, but I think our environment has gotten um, much more to be one that distracts us. 
And, uh, you know, I noticed that effect. Many of the listeners may have felt it as well, where you sit down for an hour uh, and you want to write an email and then suddenly three hours have gone by or, and you don't really know what happened. Uh, so I sometimes think we're living in the, almost like a giant casino uh, that we've, we've designed that uh, tries to grab our time and attention and divert it towards sort of random purposes, um, often in the pursuit of no great profit, but just a, a little marginal money on the side. So I, I think that, that was a concern to me. I, I'm the kind of person who, I, I guess philosophically, um, thinks that uh, there's something to a life where you've chosen what you do, and, and you know, self-development of character, I think, is very important. And I think that uh, requires focus and time and uh, space, frankly. And uh, I guess I wrote the book out of some concern that maybe we're losing uh, some of that, and it's harder to almost do what you want to do, no matter what that is, you know, build model airplanes or, or write a novel or, or just play an instrument, whatever that is, I kind of think it's being harder to do the things that really make it worth being, uh, being alive and human. So that's why I wrote the book. How's that? No, I think that's interesting. And, you know, we, we, we spent some time on a Stanford study that had to do with delayed gratification and kids picking that first marshmallow, waiting for that second or that third, and then determining success levels based on the ability to delay gratification. And I think to your point, it's just getting more difficult than ever before because there are so many calls on our attention and our gratification, and yeah. they're coming at such warped speed, and particularly if you're a parent. Uh, you're seeing this now when your own kids can comparing that over your own childhood and going, my goodness, these kids, they're on their phones. They, they don't have moments alone together. They're together on the phones, texting and chatting. And what effect does this have and what an experiment this is? Because there's never been an experiment like it ever before. No, I agree with you. To take up from that Stanford study, um, it's almost as if we live in a world covered in marshmallows. You know, so you never... <laughs> are hungry. And so even if you're a tiniest bit hungry, um, you can grab it and gratify yourself. A different way of saying it is we've sort of lost our capacity uh, to do things that are even remotely boring. And, uh, you know, at this point, in, in fact, someone who can do something that's boring has like a magical power because everyone else seems to demand sort of constant titillation. Um, you know, I, uh, in the various jobs I've held, it, you notice a lot of people can't sit, be in a meeting. You know, they can't take it. They have to start checking their email or doing something. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's uh, fine. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't like being bored like anyone else, but I also don't like being uh, tired. But you understand to stay in shape, you need to sometimes, you know, run, run, uh, run around or do some exercise. And, you know, it'll be a little unpleasant, but it's actually good for you. I think the same thing is happening a little bit with our minds, is that we have um, just created an environment that is so full of tiny little uh, almost like marshmallows, as I said, pleasure pots. Uh, and you see this most distinctively, as you say, in children. I'm also a parent of two daughters. And, um, you know, it's always something the older generation always says, well, in my day we walked 10, 10 miles right. to the <laughs> local bus stop and suffered through this and that. But I do think, you know, there were times when I was a kid where we had to, you know, essentially be bored. <laughs> a little bit to get through things. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't like it at the time, but I think it builds a certain character not to get what you want all the time. And that's what I'm a little bit worried about. Yeah, and I, I might add that I think when you're killing time and when you have space, this is where creativity comes in. This is where your ability to fill that space yourself comes yeah. in rather than yeah. be con continually entertained by some other and alternative universe. 
Well, you know, most of the things that are real feats of human um, potential, in a sense, uh, you know, they can be a little hard, almost tedious uh, in, in times. Writing a book, a good example. Um, you know, learning to play an instrument uh, is something I think people find very satisfying. It's really hard. Yep. Um, and it doesn't reward. It's not like, you know, clicking on uh, Cindy Lauper, what's she up to now? <laughs> yep, <laughs> you know, it yep. takes a lot of work. You have to get your fingers. I was trying to learn to play the ukulele the other day. <laughs> My daughter was like, this is an easy instrument, but it's actually, you know, you got to put your fingers in the right spot. It doesn't, it's not like clicking on something and it happens. That's right. And by the uh, way, we're talking, yeah. to, we're talking to Tim Wu. The book is The Attention Merchants. Tim also happens to teach uh, at Columbia Law School, so I assume yeah. that Tim's a lawyer, and I am too. And uh, there are so many other things Tim's written about, but today the focus, again, the attention merchants, the epic scramble to get inside our heads. And when we come back, we'll dive into the book, one or two more questions about his personal life, and then we're going to let it rip. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and for the hour, we're being visited by Tim Wu, the author of The Attention Merchants, The Epic Scramble to Get It Inside Our Heads. And I don't know a parent I've been talking to in the past you know, half decade now that isn't worried about the never-ending onslaught of material that goes inside our kids' heads. And frankly, as we're punish them, punishing them to stop texting or to not text and drive whatever else we're employing them to do, we're doing it ourselves. And in some senses, I think we're becoming addicted to this stuff. And the question is, are we? And what can we do about it? And what are the forces behind all of this technology? And a lot of it, many of you don't know about, which is what we're going to dive into right now and continue our conversation with Tim Wu. And Tim, you know, just a, a bit about your, your professional life as a professor at Columbia Law School. I went to the University of Virginia Law School and intellectual property for me was one of the most interesting areas. I was going to school in the early 1990s, and what was about to happen in this world of IP was, well, everybody felt like something was about to happen, and boy, did it. Now, talk a bit about the life that you live as a, as a professional and how that might have uh, in some ways affected your, your desire to write this book as well. Well, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of... Uh parts of my life that intersected with the topic of this book, which is um, both the advertising industry and the, um, the, uh, the advertising platforms, you know, the companies that, re that gather up the crowd. So um, one, I mean, one uh, thing I did is I worked in marketing at one point in my life, uh, and I think it's a very eye-opening experience to work in marketing. Uh, you realize just how, uh, even for a lawyer, it's, it's, uh, it would be surprising to realize how just simplified you have to make an argument and make it again and again and again in 10, 15 different media uh, to get heard even a little bit. Yep. You know, the, the marketing is, is just about relentless, relentless repetition and really about uh, you know, putting your, your elbow grease to the wheel, or I don't know, that's the worst metaphor I've ever used. <laughs> you know, just doing it over and over and yep. over and over again until you, to your crowd finally hits, hits what you're trying to say. 
um, I even in when I was did marketing looked a little did a little bit of advertising or at least commissioned ads and it was always shocking to me what worked. You can never predict it. It just you throw some stuff out there and this one hits and, and who knows why. Um, other things, uh, you know, I've worked in I've done some journalism uh, written for Slate magazine and, and for the New Yorker magazine, and you know that's a very instructive experience because journalists are always trying to get the attention of their readers and you're in an incredibly competitive environment. And you learn pretty quickly some of the rules, you know, you better uh, have some kind of hook. If you want to write a story, you were talking about intellectual property. If you want to write about intellectual property, well, better put Harry Potter in it, and then you'll get a lot of readers. Exactly. Um, you know, so I, this is, these are things I've learned. I, I, I have also been a law uh, professor. I worked um, in the government when I was a professor um, in antitrust enforcement, and I started feeling that we didn't, in government, really understand the, the re- business models of much of the web, uh, and that was a real challenge. Um, you know, we were investigating some of the big internet platforms, Twitter and Google, and figuring out whether they were violating antitrust laws. And we, the, the the kind of businesses that depend on advertising opposed to money, we weren't really well equipped to deal with. And that was one another thing that led me to write this book. Yeah, and that's almost a separate hour that we could do on antitrust <laughs> and Google yeah. and Facebook, and how ill-equipped old antitrust law is to grapple with the modern trusts and, and, yeah. and their power. But that's a separate conversation. Let's talk about advertising, let's talk about content, and let's talk about attention. Because in the end, from the earliest days, early newspapers, uh, you name it, folks were trying to sell content to get an audience so that they could sell them product. Yeah. Uh, so talk about some of the characters. You have a, a Jules Charest. Uh, you talk a little bit about Claude Hopkins. Talk about advertising in the 19th century, early 20th century, and, and the attention merchants of the day then. Sure. Well, one of the things I did in this book was try to figure out when advertising was invented. Uh, it's the kind of thing, you know, it's in our daily lives uh, so much now, almost every moment you can be advertised uh, to. And I just thought, well, where did this come from? Um, it actually turns out that there wasn't really advertising like we think about it before, I want to say, the late 19th century. That some of the real techniques, and by advertising I don't just mean information presentation, I mean something that really grabs you and, and shakes you around and convinces you to buy something that you wouldn't otherwise buy. Right. So I mean you know, persuasive advertising. There's always been people uh, describing that they have something for sale, you know, like a sign in a, in a window that says, um, I don't know, ye old beer available or something. Right. But this idea of something that really tries to persuade you, that, that is new. Jules Charest, who you just mentioned, um, was a Frenchman, as you can tell, uh, living in Paris, and he invented uh, the modern advertising poster. And what he did um, was create a poster that literally you could not take your eyes away from. Maybe you've seen them sometimes. they sometimes found in... Uh, cafes or bars in Paris or uh, or other uh, cities that want to be like Paris, and uh, they have usually half-dressed or scantily clad women. They're usually holding some kind of alcoholic beverage. There's the brand. It looks like they're moving. The colors are vibrant, big fields uh, of color, and these posters in the late 19th century were absolutely a sensation. No one had seen anything like this. And they said, oh, my God, you know, this is an invasion of our actual brain. And to some degree, that was true in the sense that uh, there are certain triggers 
that are almost impossible for us to ignore. Motion, um, uh, monstrous-looking uh, creatures, uh, beautiful women, uh, uh, in, uh, uh, motion, uh, loud noises. These things we cannot ignore. And uh, the advertising in the late 19th century, the advertising industry, the early industry, was learning how, how to use them. So he's one of the characters in the book. And let's talk about, as we move into the 20th century, and we start to get real major mass media, and that's uh, essentially the radio and the television. And I would only assume that the stakes just, well, they had to get ramped up. We were talking about talking to a lot of people at the same time and major companies wanting to get their brand noticed and purchased. And and talk a bit about how this ramped up in the 20th century. Well, I want to give a shout out, if that's the right phrase, or explain who really ramped this up, because it's important to understand the government got into the game, um, specifically the British government, uh, through the beginnings of propaganda on a mass scale. Uh, I think the government propaganda paved the path for commercial advertising. Um, it was something of a how-to manual. Um, before World War One. Uh, most companies did not advertise. They weren't sure it worked. They thought it was uh, disreputable. Uh, it was really, in my uh, reading of the history, the British government in World War I, with its mass recruiting campaigns, the I Need You posters, the uh, rallies in the streets, that made advertising, first of all, respectable, and second of all, proved that advertising actually worked. Yep. And uh, it was adopted in the United States uh, during the Wilson administration uh, on a huge scale. I mean, unbelievable. And, and they didn't have a lot of competition. So, you know, there was not much commercial advertising. So every single space of every uh, public area was covered in posters. Uh, they didn't have radio quite yet. Right. Uh, but and street, open street rallies, uh, people giving speeches uh, in movie theaters at the break. That was one way people were reached, patriotic speeches. And it's as if industry looked at the, the example of government and said, well, you know, this stuff works. In fact, many of the people who had worked in the U.S. Um, uh, propaganda campaign in World War I went into advertising immediately afterwards and marketing. And uh, their idea was to take the uh, methods that had been proven so successful and, and start to use them for, for big brands. Uh, there weren't big brands yet. They were also inventing the brands. You know, we think brands have been away forever, around forever, but uh, the fact is one, there was once a time where the word Cadillac didn't mean anything or right. in Dodge or Coca-Cola. These were just words, and, and, you know, they hadn't been sort of branded into our minds. It's odd because did the brands create the mass media? Did the mass media create the brands? And in some ways you're saying, boy, it's sometimes hard to separate the two. Um, no, that, absolutely. Well, when we come back, we're going to drill down even further and bring this to today. There are a few more steps along the way that we're going to take, and we're talking with Tim Wu, and the book is The Attention Merchants, the epic scramble to get inside our heads. And please go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do, and more important, go to amazon.com and grab The Attention Merchants. And the irony here, Tim, of course, is that we're trying to get attention to The Attention Merchants, and, and, and this is the conundrum, isn't it? Well, I'm no fool. You know, you, you can't uh, uh, do anything until you attract people's attention. I mean, that's one of the things that you, you, I've learned, and I think anyone who works in media uh, learns, is that it all begins with uh, attention, or even politics. You know, you can't win an election if people don't even know who you are. There's always 
you know, 10 candidates who no one has ever heard of who never make it. Yep. So the ability to make a splash initially is essential for uh, people to even decide whether they like something or not. You can't say, I don't like a movie, if you didn't even hear about it. <laughs> that is so true. And when we yeah. come back, we'll continue on that point. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Tim Wu, the attention merchants, the epic scramble to get inside our heads. And if you can't catch it here, go to our website and catch it there. And we'll be playing this a bunch more times through the month. We love to repurpose the content. So if you're only catching the middle of it right now, well, just stay tuned. It'll come again at you. And Tim, we left off with uh, the, the World War I experiment that proved the efficacy of advertising. Uh, just to touch on World War II as well, because we had just done an hour on Frank Capra, and he had said that the crowning achievement of his life was dropping the director mantle at Hol- in Hollywood and joining George Stevens, hanging out of B-17s and Liberators, and making the propaganda film series Why We Fight. And Americans got to watch this, this really nonstop and never-ending commercial for the war effort. Uh, talk about that, and then we'll dig into the, the advent of the uh, television era. Well, I'm uh, uh, less an expert on American World War II propaganda. There was some, but actually America had pulled back considerably from its World War I efforts. There had started to be a sense that um, too much, I think there was some resistance to too much propaganda. They uh, didn't want to be like Nazi Germany or... or uh, uh, Mussolini's Italy. Um, so I think propaganda had got had became more restrained during World War II in the United States. And there were films like uh, Why We Fight, uh, you know. But uh, there's always been, um, you know, pro-American, pro-war uh, films. That's a little different than the kind of intensity the, of the propaganda effort in World War One, where the dissidents were actually thrown in jail. And uh, World War One was much more intense yeah. uh, in the United States. In Europe, <laughs> um, Adolf Hitler. Uh, looked at British and American propaganda and said, these guys are geniuses, uh, especially the British. He thought, the, these, they've got it all figured out, and uh, we want to do that, but even better and bigger and crazier. And that was um, on that model. And, you know, I don't want to link Britain to, to Hitler, but I do want to say that Hitler modeled himself after British propaganda. He had also been in advertising. Not many people know that. And, uh, uh, you know, what Hitler constructed was a sort of total attentional capture. There was no room, nowhere to put your mind other than Nazi news or Nazi entertainment when he was in charge, or more precisely, his lieutenant, Goebbels. Uh, one of the things that he pioneered, <laughs> uh, it's kind of crazy, but is this prime time where you had to sit and listen to the radio show, uh, which was, you know, some music and then Hitler speaking. Uh, on pain of uh, criminal punishment. So, I mean, we talk about must-see TV nowadays, but this was must-listen <laughs> must or go to jail. Slightly different. Uh, yeah. Slightly different. Yeah. And by the way, the, 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 it's no accident that every dictator seizes the media and seizes the attention of a nation. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's how important it is that if you're a dictator, you're going, I need this tool. 
to keep my people in place and to think the way they need to be thinking. Yep. And, and they have, boy, my goodness, from someone like Castro straight to someone like Hitler, there are not a lot of other options or opinions floating out there in anywhere from the Internet to television or anywhere else. But, yeah, and it has a lot to do with how free you end up feeling. I mean, you can't choose something you don't even know exists at all. That's right. That's and in a, Hitler's time, like, you couldn't listen to British radio at all, or it was, it was illegal. And so you had no idea of other options. And, you know, he managed to really control his population. Anyway, I, we could talk about that for hours. No, it's fascinating. Yeah, one thing about. we don't have is a lot, lack of options today. But let's talk about the 1950s, then even the 60s, and the advent in the golden age of television. And let's talk about a character like, uh, like Paley or like Winfrey. Um, talk about a couple of these legends and what you call uh, the celebrity industrial complex that we sort of have uh, sort of today on the television side. Yeah, sure. So William Paley is a major character in, in the 20th century and in my book. He was a fascinating figure, a playboy of the old school. Um, he had... Uh, incredibly sophisticated taste. He loved Picasso before anyone knew who Picasso was. Uh, but he also had an ear for the public and what they wanted. And so he was incredibly talented at bringing CBS as sort of the great uh, and most important network in the United States, top of the ratings and television. Uh, even though NBC had gotten there first, uh, whether it was the Ed Sullivan Show or I Love Lucy or Bing Crosby or you name it, he just could figure out exactly what people wanted to hear, and, and he gave it to them. Um, uh, one of the challenges uh, of that era in the 50s is television um, became increasingly commercial. People had thought it would be, um, you know, sort of uh, more devoted to uh, uh, news or education. It became increasingly uh, commercial. But he did an incredible job of, of trying to build a television into something people just really by the – you know, hundred, almost sometimes over 100 million people a night would be uh, watching these shows. And, uh, you know, we haven't really seen anything like it since. Uh, Oprah Winfrey plays a role in the book. Uh, she's one of the first, maybe the first, to found uh, uh, what I would call a one-woman uh, celebrity-slash-advertising-slash-production empire. She took all the functions that were divided uh, in between, um, you know, the network and the station and the and the actors, and she she made it all herself, <laughs> yep. and um, made incredible amounts of money. Uh, you know, for many years she was the by far the leading uh, earner in the entertainment industry, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, became the first black billionaire, um, and she just uh, is, is an important uh, innovator in this book. Also, maybe more than anyone else, used the techniques of organized uh, religion. Uh, you know, made her show into a, more of a spiritual uh, kind of show, which was unusual. I mean, there was like Pat Robertson, the, the 500 Club, but without being overtly religious, she uh, made spiritual appeals that were very uh, successful. So, you know, there are some of the people who populate this book and uh, show how our present came to be. You know, a fascinating side note, uh, Oprah Winfrey, I believe, created a ministry. And a ministry mostly organized around home, stay-at-home moms, mostly white stay-at-home moms. And I don't know if you remember when Oprah suddenly decided to retire her show. But just as a side note, if you track the Nielsens, when she decided to choose to go with an African-American president to endorse rather than the woman president, something yeah. fascinating happened. Oprah is a traitor board went up on her website. One million-plus yeah. women went on and said... I'm never watching again. You chose your race over gender. They uh, were furious. 
you're right. That was a turning point. Um, I I think that uh, she was probably on safer territory in the 90s. In the 2000s, she started throwing around her influence a little more. She came under uh, increasing uh, scrutiny or criticism, um, among others from organized, from organized religion. Um, but also, as you just said, during the endorsement of Barack Obama over Hillary Clinton lost, a lot of her audience had a big ratings dive. That's when she decided to finally uh, cancel the show, although she did recover. <laughs> in the, in her last season was, was, was very good. So yeah. uh, who knows? Um, you know, people uh, forgive and forget, or they I don't do. know what. They're but, forgiving. Yeah. They're forgiving. But it even shows that great brands can make a mistake. And, oh, yeah. And it can cost them. And the marketplace is, is punitive at times. And, oh, yeah. and, and can really put you in your place. And uh, Oprah definitely felt the backlash there. And she has not endorsed candidates since. And I think, you know, the Johnny Carson's golden rule, which is that I am not here to, to discuss um, politics. I will lambast both sides equally. And people turn me on at night to laugh and go to sleep. Um, and his, I think this is why, in, in large measure, Johnny had, obviously there were only three networks and he was a talent but I think that that's one of the other reasons why he had such a massive following. He didn't cut off large parts of his audience with his ideology or his opinions. You know, it's nice to have a few spaces that are free from politics. I yep. feel like we have fewer of those today. You know, we know every newspaper has its side. We know every show. I mean, you kind of, and you're like, oh, everything has to be linked to politics. I mean, I'm just one of these people who, you know, I like politics as much as anyone, but feels there should be some areas where as a nation we... You know, talk about something else. I guess there's sports. <laughs> yeah, there is but, sports. Yeah, there is sports. But uh, other than that, it seems like almost everything else has got to somehow be linked to like whether it helps the Democrats or the Republicans. <laughs> it's and it's I'm a like, it, oh, come on. Like, it's a little <laughs> crazy. And when we come yeah. back, we don't do that here. By the way, on our American stories, when we come back, our final segment and the most important, bringing us right into the present, the attention merchants, the epic scramble to get inside our heads. We're talking to Tim Wu, professor at the Columbia Law School and author. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, our final segment with Tim Wu, and the book is The Attention Merchants, and let's talk about today. And we had talked earlier about that one hour that you sit down at the computer that turns into three. We all know that. We all feel it. We don't know what the heck happened, and we don't feel good about it, because now we're not getting to the stuff we want to do. Sit down with the wife and just talk for an hour. Play football with the kid. Uh, that time has now been crowded out. What's going on behind the scenes, Tim, that's making us or pulling us to spend more time than we otherwise would have planned? What are the attention merchants doing now that's different and of a different magnitude and order and sophistication than the attention merchants of TV and radio? Well, let me just start and say that the technological advances have been extraordinary. Um, uh, the the advertising platforms of today, and I'm thinking of the online ones, uh, just know so much more about you and are so much more practiced in their techniques of trying to get you to kind of lose control and start to drift around uh, for hours and hours. 
Um, it's not unlike the design of the casino, the design of the web today. It just has a, a million different little uh, blinking lights and moving pictures. And I almost find myself, uh, my hand moving as if uh, bidden by some other force to click on, I don't know, some story about, uh, look at the secret that happened in World War II or something. Um, and now, why is it uh, so much better? So one thing is uh, the, the main advertisers and sites know a lot more about you, so that's one thing, so they can target things to try to get at you. But I think more importantly is they do a lot of experimentation. A site like BuzzFeed, which pioneered a lot of these techniques, just throws everything at the wall and becomes very good at understanding what makes people click. Uh, they just study it, and they, they keep stats, and the stuff that doesn't work gets thrown out, and the stuff that does work just uh, gets pushed over and over and over again. So I, I just think there's a lot more sophistication in the sort of cocoon we live in when we log in, um, and that's how it manages to devour so much of our time. And uh, that's one of the things I, I'm concerned about. I, as you said, you know, most of us have things we want to do, whether it's building that model airplane or, uh, I, I don't know, playing with your kids more, whatever it is, we have things we'd like to do. And then we look back and say, well, but I spent three hours clicking on pictures of cats. You think, well, what exactly, why did that happen? How am I spending my life? And that, that is what I, I'm, I'm concerned about. And, uh, you know, I hope we can uh, start to gain some consciousness to do something about it. I, I think a point you made here, and, and it's a line that I'm going to repeat here, and I know authors sometimes cringe when their own work is quoted at them, but the quote is, the best minds of my generation are thinking about how to make people click ads. And, and, and by the way, some of the great scientific minds working on algorithms and all the things they're doing. And my goodness, the great, you would hope that some of these would be trying to get the next cure for cancer or Alzheimer's. Um, I think this also concerns you as well. Not only the impact it's having on the people who are, who are getting dragged into this place, but so much of the great talent in this country is running to Silicon Valley to do that. No, I, I completely agree with you. I, you know, this country has an incredible uh, set of scientists and engineers who invented uh, more than almost any other place in history. And, um, you know, what you, you name it, from spaceflight through um, uh, the Internet itself, through the web, through some of the uh, more impressive web technologies. But a lot of that talent in Silicon Valley is right now, as you said, going to try to get people to click on ads because that's the model. Um, you know, when you think about it, uh, how much has Facebook or Twitter really improved over the last five years? Well, they haven't. All they've done is become better at uh, uh, delivering ads in more insidious and sneaky ways. So there's a huge amount of effort going into that. I think it's a cause for for concern, frankly. Um, you know, I want to be, a, as you say, a country that's inventing things that are real new inventions and, you know, different ways of spying on people or getting them to click on a stupid little window that shows up does actually take a lot of talent, but, uh, you know, that could be <laughs> inventive talent better spent. I, I really feel strongly about that. Yep. And, and again, this is where the market, you know, sometimes can create distortions. I mean, this is, but you know, I'm not sure what the answer is. I'm not sure that there's any regulatory regime that can drive talent into another place. That's a, that's a scary idea, but maybe just the awareness of it itself is important. Talk to enough young people and they say, oh, I want to go have a career in Facebook and maybe make a face at them. Um, yeah, you know, I think the, it's changing. I think it's sort of changing. I think, you know, these things go through cycles. And I think, you know, people are trying to move to different business models. Uh, it, it, the technologists, you know, I talk to a lot of them. I'm a tech guy myself. And they're like, I don't, don't want to be an ad tech. You know, the talent wants to get out of there. 
and do something else. And I, I do have some faith that we'll find our way out of this. But we are in a place where a lot of our computer scientists are in what's called ad tech, which is improving ad delivery. And, um, you know, so it is. No doubt. And, and the, the, I think the great explosion that's happening also is the content explosion. And, uh, you know, Hollywood now has budgets for Netflix uh, and the likes of budgets they haven't seen in a very long time. And what's beautiful about something like Netflix is they're not they're competing my attention, but for content. And they're going to get a subscription model from me. I'm going to pay them $15 and they better over the, the, the month give me $15 worth of really terrific content. Yeah, I mean, that, it, it can work. People are willing to pay for good stuff if you do it right. You know, and so it's all about everybody wants the same thing. Nobody likes ads. And even the companies that rely on ads, they don't love ads either. They'd rather do content. And if you can figure out the way to connect, you know, our desire to see great stuff, read interesting news, listen to great programs like this program, and, you know, the willingness to pay in an easy way, uh, you know, whether it's subscription or whatever it is, you know, it can be a happy world for everyone. It's just we got to get there somehow. And I think one of the problems is, you know, we got used to everything being free. It all yeah. has to be free or we're not ever going to touch it. And I think that has actually hurt us as a culture. I don't think it's the strength of our culture that so we insist on everything being free. No, and I think free implies, in the end, stealing someone else's property. I mean, I've, also, I've often told people, when you take a song, my sister's a professional songwriter, and she said some hit songs. I said, when you take that song, you're stealing someone else's work. Um, and yeah. then that person's not inclined to write another song, and then you will have, by theft, killed off art. Yeah. And, I mean, and, we, and it's, a big, yeah. It's, a big, it's a big problem. I think we want to have a country that's you know, rich culturally as well as financially, where you know, people can make money being songwriters or uh, journalists or you know, having great shows like this one or you know, whatever it is. Not, it's not everyone is making ball bearings or something. Um, you know, and I think that takes a willingness on the population's part to pay for stuff they want, to support the kind of culture they want to see. And um, with everything on an ad model, it just, everything goes towards, oh, you know, it, whatever is the most attention-getting wins all the time. And I think that over time can hurt our culture. And do you think we'll get to the, the area where patrons will come in as well? I mean, when I think of the Renaissance, when I think of Michelangelo, when I think of great art commissioned over the centuries, um, to what degree will we have that too, Tim? To what degree might that fill a, a space in the end? I mean, I think it does to some degree already. It may end up doing more in the future. Uh, it may be that people can't figure out how to make money on news, and so they rely on wealthy patrons. Um, it's not like that model is perfect either. No. <laughs> you know, there's problems with that. Uh, you yep. know, you have when people support something, they decide they want to have uh, to dictate what it would say. Oh, sure. And, the know, Soros, the, the press. Soros press will have the Soros opinion, and the Koch right. brothers press will have the Koch brothers opinion. Press. Yeah. Um, but at least maybe there is a place where journalists of that inclination would push. People would get both. Read the Wall Street Journal. Read the New York Times. Between the two of them, I think you'll get a pretty healthy reality check on a, a full scope of what different uh, orientations are thinking about a, a specific issue or a specific uh, political idea or even a particular piece of art because through the lens so many people now look at almost everything through a cultural and political lens um, right. that in the end uh, I, I see that as something that just might naturally happen Tim I'm not happy right. about it but I think down the road it might be something that that just happens we were talking during the break about and I'll, I'll make this the last point that sure. if there are too many ads uh, or if Facebook starts to come in, by the way, my little girl said Facebook's so over. 
She doesn't do it. <laughs> Right. And, and in large measure, I think it's because those kids, A, think it's uncool because I'm on it. But second, <laughs> I, they already feel the creeping invasion of ads. And they feel like it's now a commercialized platform. They hear about the stock. They hear right. about it being traded. And they're in the new, new thing. And so in the end, if Facebook starts to n- not be careful, it can face the protest vote. Yes, that's right. I think over the history of advertising, people tend to get fed up when it goes too far. And it doesn't, it's weird, it's not like a price. So with prices, if something goes to $1,000, you see a reaction right away. With advertising, it's more like people notice they're fed up and all of a sudden they start quitting. And sometimes they be very dramatic and they all leave. Yep. You know, uh, MySpace, 2006 or so, everyone just quit at once. So, you know, when you keep adding more and more ads to something, it'll work for a while, but then you could have a total collapse. Maybe football is having that problem. I don't know. You know how football ratings are starting to go down? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it could be the people have just like, oh, I don't know if I have three hours to watch. I love football, but, you know, I don't know if I have three hours to watch half an hour of action. <laughs> well, you know, you're hearing from more and more people the problem that they, they encountered. And some people say it's Colin Kaepernick. And I say, no, that's not it. Here's what's it. Thursday night football, Sunday night football, Sunday afternoon football, Monday night football. It's too much. Right. And you're watering that's, that's... down your product. You're trying to capture too much of my attention. Would you people just do one day and maybe Monday night? And you watch. They're already pulling back, Tim, yeah. on Thursday night football. They're going to cancel it. All uh, right. Well, any, you know, fi- any not... final thoughts, Tim, uh, before we say goodbye? No, I, you know, I have some faith ultimately in the power of these things to fix themselves, but it requires our consciousness. It requires people to think about how they're spending their attention and, you know, thinking about whether they're getting a re- good return when you spend time with something and you uh, decide to watch their ads, are they actually giving you something in return? Uh, and, you know, if you really support things, maybe you should pay for them. Yep. You know, put your money where your mouth is and support the stuff that, uh, that really is quality. So that's well, what I want to say. I'll ask you to put your money where your mouth is here, folks, and buy the Attention Merchants. Go to Amazon.com. Again, the Attention Merchants. Tim Wu is the author. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.